chose the themes of masculinity, which will be intertwined with matrimony, uh, two of my favorite uh, themes, relationships and masculinity. And I particularly want to address the issues I'm, I'm going to go to today because they're issues that have been and are important to me personally, so it was a personal discovery to pay attention to it, but also because I know numerous people uh, in the ethical society who are dealing with these two issues. And so I, I saw myself as trying to make a report today of some research I did into this and for you to try, to try it on and see if it fits your experience. Um, a lot of people have said that our spiritual, I am going to get to opening words. <laughs> right now. Some people relate our spirituality, the kind of spirituality, and they say that it's Jungian. Um, and uh, in that spirit, I've chosen something from a poet, the poet Robert Bly. It was an interview that he gave in which he referred to an idea of Jung, and I want to use this for opening words. I began to think of my father, not as someone who had deprived me of love or attention or companionship, but as someone who himself has been deprived. Jung made an interesting observation. He said that if a male is brought up mainly with a mother, he will take a feminine attitude toward his father. He will see his father through his mother's eyes, especially the inadequacies of father. The mother tends to convey those excuse me, he tends to convey that civilization, culture, feeling, relationships are things which the mother, the son, and the daughter share. Whereas what the father has is something rougher, something more inadequate, stiff, maybe brutal, unfeeling, obsessed, rationalistic, money or work-oriented, uncompassionate. So the young male grows up with a wounded image of his father not necessarily caused by the father's action, but based on the mother's observation of these actions. If the son accepts his mother's view of his father, he will look at his own masculinity from a feminine point of view. Did it? Jim Baker did it. Friday night, they had a talk show in which there was a whole panel of preachers who had done it. Gary Hart did it. Presidents Kennedy and Roosevelt did it. Are these men exceptions? I mean, are these guys like power crazed, hypocritical? Or are they just men who live in the public fishbowl showing us what most men go through? What I wonder is a force in a man so strong that he would risk a $150 million a year enterprise to look at a strange woman naked? <laughs> or 
on the verge of the presidency of the United States of America, having been warned over and over by staff, by media, by friends, by family, don't get caught. He loses it all for monkey business? What force is that strong? That's what I want to look at. Today, I want to examine what I think is the natural evolution of the developing masculinity in a man and the stages and the things that it goes through. And that what happens when we don't understand the process and don't face the issues and how it comes out unconsciously anyway. Now, what I'm going to be talking about is going to focus on two transition moments. One would be called making a commitment to a woman and what happens to masculinity at that point. And the second one is uh, the midlife itch in a marriage, you know, in the 40s or 50s. Some recommitment questions come up then. And those are the two transitions I want to focus on. And of course, for men, I'd like you to just, uh, uh, some of you may have more association with one or the other, uh, but I'd like you to just try it on and see if it fits your experience or not. Uh, women, it also, I think, curiously may fit your experience, too, because women are also trying to bring out the masculine and integrate it with the feminine in them. But also, I think you might be interested, too, as just um, as an observation of how the other half might be and how you might relate to that effectively. Um, now, the dimensions of masculinity that I'm going to be talking about are four. One I call the woman's man. and kind of like the one that I read about in the opening words, woman's man, and then the wild man, and then the wise man, and then the whole man. And I want to show how in a marriage, and what I mean by marriage is a relationship that's exclusive, that's intimate, and permanent. Um, and that kind of in a marriage is an arena, really. And it's an arena where masculine and feminine dimensions of human nature try to work itself out. And that's a little confusing because when you're in the relationship, you think it's a man and a woman trying to work their relationship out. And of course, it's true in some way. But another level, and a spiritual level, it is the feminine nature and the masculine nature in each of us trying to learn how to connect up with itself. And we learn from the other, and there's some interactions this way. But it gets a little confusing because sometimes it's a dialogue between your masculine and feminine that gets confused with your dialogue between yourself and your mate. But in the marriage, what's happening, I believe, is masculine and femininity are learning to get along. Now, the difference between those two is a theme that's certainly run through human histories. I mean, it starts on the most obvious levels that some of us are innies and some of us are outies. <laughs> but beyond the physiological and the psychological and the spiritual things that have been examined and reported, we share a rather common human nature. But a male and a female start out life experiencing it from a different perspective. They start from a different point. But what the object, I think, of both of them is, is to discover their whole human nature, not just the part that was born near them. And the choices in life is either to 
discover that part of your nature and make it part of you and enjoy its energy and creativity, or just be alienated from it, unaware of it, go through life just ignorant of what your whole nature is like. Well, the ancients depicted the female half as uh, earth and uh, the male part is sky. Women as the guardians of heart and hearth and soul. Women are responsible for the inner life, the family life, the spiritual life. Men are responsible for the outer world, the work world. My experience is that although these are severe stereotypes, they're generally true. Not true for all people, everybody all the time, but they are generally true. Women seem to be more comfortable with feelings, more concerned and involved with relationships. And they have to consciously learn how to be more task-oriented in the outer world, more competitive. Whereas men start out pushing and shoving and a little competitive, or a lot competitive. You see playgrounds in elementary schools. They tend to be more task-oriented, and they have to learn about feelings and how to be successful in their inner life. Now, a major shaping time for a man, which turns out to distinguish him culturally a lot from a woman, is um, early childhood, where women are the primary child rearers. And in most cultures and most families, and for most of us, I think that's probably true. In that environment, most boys and girls are living in a female realm a place in which the spirit and behavior of the woman is determining the culture, the mood, the norm, the rules, what it's like to be in the house, what it's like to be in relationship with the rest of the family. It is a woman's controlled environment. And the child in it has to take no responsibility, really, for controlling that environment, little. Doesn't have to um, control anything, because it's, it's controlled, it's given and lives within it at first. And it's a world that is very feeling-based, very concerned with how things are among the people in the household. But soon, between age 10 and 12, it is forever dawning on this young man that he is a male child and therefore not a being like his mother. He must learn instead to be a man. And how does he learn to be a man? Usually his father is less present, so less observable. Very often his father may be less intimate of a person, a person who kind of hugs and touches and is there at vulnerable moments less. So you get to maybe know him less than that level. And he may be someone who's less self-disclosing. And so the way you learn about the man, masculinity, is from your mother's opinions, her reactions to it, and from your own sense of the emerging masculinity in you, even though you don't have much of a roadmap and a way of labeling it, you're certainly aware of it coming up. 
Well, a girl's got to learn how to be like her mother, but a boy must learn how to be different from his mother. Without that difference deteriorating into some kind of antagonism, polarization, or fear or terror, but just different. Not better, worse, different. Now, after um, puberty, a boy really never can go back to experiencing his mother, his childhood realm, in the same way again. He can't turn back to a world in which he was kind of a special guest in the realm of being a woman. In fact, the boy usually is embarrassed by the amount of woman that's in him. I can remember in elementary school age of having a vivid image and making a conscious decision that there was a part of me that was like a raw piece of flesh that no matter how delicately touched would bleed. And I identified that as my mother. I was like my mother in that way. And I did not want to be like my mother in that way. I wanted to cover it over with a crust so hard that not only could no one reach it, they wouldn't know it was there. It's kind of embarrassing that it was there. You know, I was supposed to be a man, and I had this soft place of mother in me. And as I talk to men, I think that many men have that moment of even conscious decision to not allow, certainly not appreciate the feminine in them, but instead to try to take on a masculine uh, nature. What happens with this, though, that in age, with age, when we've explored our masculine turf and begin to realize that the other dimension of human nature needs to be explored, we regret that decision, have to return to that decision, have to reverse the decision to bottle up our feminine energy so that we can feel some love and passion and caring and purpose in life. And if you don't, you start feeling dead, incomplete. I want to tell a fairy tale here, a story. It comes out of Grimm's fairy tales, Iron Hands. It starts like this. This is only actually a piece of a much longer tale, but I'm telling this piece in this particular way uh, to dramatize kind of the points that I want to make today, introduce them, actually. Once upon a time, there was a young prince who lived in a castle with his father, the king, who governed the kingdom, and his mother, the queen, who governed the castle. The prince was free to play wherever he wanted. His role in life was to be happy and content, and everyone served to make it true. His favorite game, though, was playing with a golden ball that was his special toy. Now, in fairy tales, many children have golden balls. They represent um, the spiritual self, something when they grow up, they're going to treasure but when they're children, they just play with it. In this courthouse, there was a remarkable landmark. It was a giant cage. In the cage was a creature. It was called the wild man. Now, nowadays, he was just a landmark. People were very familiar with seeing the cage and the man in it. They ignored him pretty much. But there was a time when this wild man was free, and he robbed, and he raped, and he killed at will. 
The queen and all the women were terrified of even going out of doors. And the men only went out of doors in groups and well-armed. But once captured, the king built this incredible cage in the courtyard and put on it a lock that had only one key. And he hid that key in the safest place he could find. Now, one day, where the prince is playing in the courtyard, his golden ball takes a strange bounce and rolls between the bars of the cage. And the wild man picks it up. And the boy runs up to the cage and says, give me my ball back. The wild man says, open the door. I gave this talk just so I could do that. <laughs> No, I can't. Even if I could, I just couldn't do it. And he runs away. But he realizes he needs to have his golden ball. He doesn't want his mother and father to know that he's lost his golden ball. And he truly misses his golden ball. He enjoyed it. It was his favorite plaything. So he goes back again and he says, please let me have my ball. I need my ball. I want my ball. It's only a ball. Give me my ball. Wild man says, let me out! Open the door! The prince says, even if, even if I would, I don't have the key. I don't know where it is. I'll tell you where it is! Where do you suppose it is? I mean, do you think the king gave it to the head of the palace guard? Or do you think he hid it in the cellar? Or is it choice three? He hid it in the queen's bed. <laughs> what should the prince do? I mean, is he going to go into his mother's bed to get the key and then free the wild man? I mean, what an outrageous thing to do. But he can't escape the fact that his spiritual self is in the possession of a wild man in a cage. So he could go to his father, maybe? Think about that. If he went to his father, what would happen? His father would probably say, sorry, son, you lost it. I can't risk the whole kingdom just to get your ball back. Your spiritual self will have to remain in the cage with the wild man. You'll learn to live without it. I think some of us do that. Some of us let our spiritual self stay caged with the wild man in the middle of the court. But then there's the thought about, maybe I could go to my mother and just tell her, come on, give me the key, tell her the situation, and she'll take care of it. So I tell her, and she says, don't be silly. It's only a golden ball. Your father gave me this for safekeeping. That's not possible. But I'll tell you what I can do. Come on over here, and I'll give you a hug. It's really going to be all right. So the boy goes to the bosom of his mother and hugs her. But this time, Unlike all the times he had been hugged and hugged before, 
this time, the wild man has possession of his spiritual self. While hugging his mother, sexual appetite arises. What a horror! Love and sex together! He can choose to keep that wild man caged, keep that sexual feeling caged, and still get love. Or he can choose the sexual energy and be cut off. What's he to do? Well, our young prince sneaks into his mother's bed late at night, finds the key under her pillow, and brings it to the wild man, who unlocks the lock and heads for the edge of town. And the prince yells after him, wait, wait! You've got to take me with you. I can't stay here. I've stolen into my mother's bed, violating her trust. I violated my father's rules by setting you loose. I can't stay here. You have to take me with you. So the wild man, laughing, <laughs> picks the prince up, puts him on his shoulders, and the two of them march off into the wilderness together. Following their urges, not pleasing any mom, not worrying about any dad, sowing wild oats, running up the highest accident rates, unemployment figures, drug abuse, crime, unwanted pregnancies. <laughs> freedom for freedom's sakes, wild for the fun of wildness. No idea how the world works, no purpose in life, no home, no loved ones, no sense of yourself beyond your impulses. Wild man is the untamed masculine energy that mother never told you about and father never wanted you to show him. Fiercely competitive, controlling, self-centered, destructive anger, wanting to get even, get more, can even get some joy from hurting self-indulgent, work when I want to, sleep when I want to, get up when I want to, sexually insatiable, so he thinks. Bad guys on TV, 80% of the time we're chasing bad guys who go around ripping people and things off, and other bad guys chase them, and at the end they get caged. Over and over we run that through our psyche. I mean, you ever feel that kind of outrageous? I do. Everything about going in the Safeway, filling up the cart, going right by the cash register and loading it in the car. <laughs> How about when you're on the street and you're aroused by a woman? You grab her. You take her. Why not? I felt like it. <laughs> what kind of a world would that be? Imagine my life if I lived like the wild man. It'd be a wreck. My friends would ostracize me. My wife and kids would leave me. I'd lose my job. 
I'd be jailed by the police. Most young men go into the wilderness with a certain balance. But the wildness is there. I see it particularly in men who associate around uh, sporting games and bars and hang out with a lot of guys. It's a good time. It's a wild time. It's a rootless time. And you're rootless because you're ruthless. And you're ruthless because you're rootless. It's an exciting time. Living in the wilderness with the wild man and the golden ball, remember them? There was a favorite game. The wild man would take that golden ball and he would throw it as far as he could. And they'd both run to catch the ball. And a wild man would always get it. <laughs> always get it. One day, a wild man throws and pay over the trees. And they run to get it. And they come up to this big wall. They had run in to the edge of another kingdom. And the wall was around a garden that belonged to the princess of the kingdom. So the boy climbs over the wall, gets up top, and the wild man says, hey, I'm not going into the garden. I mean, I'm a wilderness guy. So he climbs down, and he finds out that the gardener has found the golden ball. He can go back into the wilderness, but the gardener now has his golden ball. So he decides to stay and learn to be a gardener. Prince, the woman's man, that is, the wild man, and the third characteristic or dimension of our masculinity is the gardener. Gardening starts when you put up fences. I mean, when you start a garden, it's actually wilderness, you know? You know, a lot of people, when they're looking for a perfect relationship, they're looking for a relationship that's fully developed and beautiful. It's like going around looking for a garden. That's not the way it works. You start, and it's jungly, and it's barren, and you've got to put up fences, and you've got to till it, and you've got to plant your seed. And then it's a garden. You've got to make the commitment before it actually happens. And that's a big deal to be a gardener, to make a commitment on the faith that you can do it and the faith that the earth is worth tilling. It's going to produce something. But you know... There are a lot of beautiful pieces of land in the world, and I would be very hard-pressed to say that this one was more beautiful than this one. But at the end of life, there is a way in which there is one piece that could be far more beautiful than the others. And that comes not when you visit a little bit each one, but when you choose a piece of land and you put your fences up and you till the soil and you build a house and you get to know that piece of land in the morning, in the evening, in the fall, and in the spring, year after year, as a young man, a middle-aged man, and as an old man. And then you get to know a level of beauty that's different. And that one becomes the most beautiful. And it comes a time to make a commitment. And when you do, you have to learn how to garden. And in the process, the man begins to pay attention, not as a boy, but as an adult, to his feminine needs, so-called feminine needs. He learns to take care of things like food and shelter and health and beauty. He becomes a husband, a father, a creative worker. 
Now, the story goes on and on and on, but for today, that's as much as that I want to tell. But I tell it to introduce three of the four characters, the woman's man and the wild man and the gardener. I want to return to real life by reminding us that I was talking about the man who becomes a prince and then becomes a wild man and is approaching making a commitment and connecting up with a woman. He goes through a shopping phase, shopping around, expanding his acquaintances, um, companions, friends, learning how to be intimate. But it comes a time when there's a woman that he's taking seriously. I want to look at what his masculine state of mind is at the moment that he is approaching, making a commitment. At this point in his life, probably the most significant relationship he's had is with a mother, his mother. And what he knows about women is what he knows about his mother. And maybe a sister, or maybe there was a short-term earlier wife. But he's accumulated some knowledge about woman. And what he knows most about women is how to be the prince with a woman, or how to be a wild man with a woman. The prince knows that the woman is the source of all good things. And pleasing the woman is the way to make the relationship work. That's what the prince knows. The problem is that women don't necessarily want to be pleased. When they see this kind of behavior, they often resent it. They don't like mothering. They don't want to mother a boy. I want a man. She doesn't see a prince here. She sees a wimp. And what she was looking for was a very big, brave knight, a Sir Lancelot. Now, I want to tell a secret here to women, to men too. I think that if you try scratching, tell me if this isn't true in your experience, scratching the surface of a wimp, what you find inside, now I'm not going to tell you Sir Lancelot because that's not true. Powerful men like Sir Lancelot are not discovered under anything. They are powerful men who have been built, created by hard-working women who've worked very hard to bring out the strength in him. And you don't find them laying around. When you scratch the wimp, what you get inside is a caged wild man. And the more wimpy a man acts, the more primitive his wild man, because the wimp is a cage to keep down the wild man who went out, acts in a very antisocial way, in a way that nobody likes, not even him. Does not know how to bring out his wild man without a lot of destruction, so he keeps it well caged. And that's what's underneath the wimp, and that's what he's dealing with. Now, some of you, if you want to relate effectively, what your task is, is to help him 
open the door, let that wild man out little by little, tame the wild man, bring it out. Now, if you're a woman who tends to attract the more wild man type, when you scratch the wild man, I think what you'll find is a wimp. What I mean by that, nothing pejorative. What I mean by that is a young prince, a man who very much wants to please a woman, to make the relationship work. In fact, he does it so automatically. He is so romantic, so pulled into it. The only way he can protect himself from his desire is to be tough and cut you off. Because it's hard. Inside, he is the young prince. And what he needs is to bring out that young prince part of his nature in a way in which he doesn't lose his bearings, become too placating. The wild man and the prince are the two primitive dimensions of male energy. And learning to relate to a woman requires these two dimensions to integrate and integrate with our feminine nature. Or another way of stating it from a woman's point of view, I think that building a relationship means helping a man learn to integrate his prince and his, wilden, and his wild man. I, I, I want to say that if I was doing this from the point of view of femininity, I would say that her task is to, interview, is to integrate her masculinity and femininity, and it's the man's task to assist that process. Let me now focus this as introduction to a particular time, the time of making a commitment. And why is it so difficult? You know, there are magazine articles in the Washingtonian and the Psychology Today and the Washington Post always saying, I men can't make relationships. You know, and I've worked with a lot of singles and couples and people, and I want to just say that, that um, there is a truth to that. Uh, but women play their half of the dance. And I think that it is not a fully accurate statement. But today is about masculinity, so I want to talk about the male half of how it's hard for a man that makes him not want to make that commitment. I think that men and women who are inexperienced at managing certain moments at the beginning of a relationship and where, where masculinity and femininity collide, unless they know how to or learn how to do this well, commitment becomes unthinkable. Once um, our, pri our prince and our wild man uh, starts a serious relationship with a woman, there comes a time in the relationship where there's some form of impasse, where the woman unleashes her feminine side, her feminine energy. She expresses perhaps more hurt or more fear or more anger than the man has ever been able to match with his own energy. This emotional energy issue is on her turf. They're on emotional turf. The woman's man and uh, the wild man get very, very upset. Neither know how to respond to this level of emotional energy. The woman's man is used to submitting to the mother. 
not resisting in any way. The prince wants to please, not to upset. He has immediately the instinct to submit, but then to feel engulfed, and then to need distance. And so when he sees the emotional energy, and he knows he's been down this path before in previous relationships, he knows he wants to back away because he doesn't want to surrender, go through it again. Well, what about the wild man part of his personality? Well, the wild man, when he sees or feels that emotional, strong, feminine energy coming from the woman at this impasse time, wants to kill it. Wants it to stop, to be bottled up now. And I will do anything, including kill the relationship, to make it happen. I want to hit you. Now that's very upsetting to the woman and very upsetting to most men to have that kind of energy come out. What he does with it in both cases is to say, well, look what's happening here. Things are coming up in me that are horrible. I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. This is obviously not the one. We're not meant for each other. Look what's going on. Making commitment possible means learning to manage some very specific moments. When these moments are not managed well, they produce all this energy, this emotion. What it requires to manage these moments is to take our masculine and feminine energy and put them together in a way that is new for us in our experience. Not new, other men have gone through it, but, not, but new for us. Integrate this in a new way. Men must learn, for example, how to be, this, be present, be there present in the face of a woman while she is having very strong feelings. Something a man has to learn how to do and for everyone it's the first time. Another thing that a man needs to learn how to do is how to shout, yell, cry, do a male dance without hitting or running. To have that strong energy, not only in the other person and being present, but the strong energy in you, and not use it to say, get out of the situation, leave the room, or use it to break something, but just let it yell it. Let it be in the room. A third thing that a man needs to know how to do is to say no, to say no with love. And the fourth thing is a man needs to ask for what he wants, to ask for what he wants. And the fifth is learn to surrender to a woman surrender to a woman's leadership. And the final thing is how to be a leader to a woman. Now, these all occur in specific moments and in specific interactions and unfortunately often in impasses, moments of impasse. We're not at our best. That's the difference between, I think, a person who is um, crisis-driven, psychological-driven, and spiritually-driven 
uh, psychologically driven, I know many of us are, and that is that when we have a crisis, we go to a therapist and we help get help from them to sort out psychodynamically what we've been creating and how to uncreate it. Spiritually, people are looking to fix the roof when it's not raining, is to try to do some self-discovery about the forces that are running us and moving us so that we know it and we can kind of manage that energy as it goes. But the interactions here that we're talking about are very upsetting. They're crisis feeling to a man. They bring up identity questions and that threaten, who am I? So I feel a sense of fear that's really primary. Neither the prince nor the wild man really know how to deal with this. Neither of them dealt, dealt successfully with woman on an equal feeling level. What the needed here is a fusion of the prince's sensitivity and femaleness, comfort, and the wild man's courage and energy. And when they fuse together, they become that strong, disciplined gardener personality, a wise man who does what he needs to do, smells the flowers, but serves the muses, serves his feminine muses, his creativity, makes it count, creates something positive with a woman. I want to examine these high energy moments that I just mentioned in light of how they either can or cannot lead to this fusion called the gardener. How do they transfer in? I want, and I want to take the moment when the prince and the wild man are both very, very upset because of the strong emotional reaction to a woman. A woman's having strong emotional reaction. And his instinct is either to submit to her and give in right now and get her later, or to um, uh, leave or strike back. A guideline of alternative that's possible, and I think necessary to manage that moment, is to be able, in the face of very strong feeling, to simply be present. To be present, I have my own checklist. The first thing it says is, don't leave the room. <laughs> Usually, that's pretty much what I'm meditating on. Don't leave the room. <clears throat> Inside, I may feel panic. I may feel fury but I don't leave the room. Nor do I give advice. Nancy won't recognize that. This is my list. I don't. <laughs> don't give advice about how the woman should avoid the situation next time. Don't make her wrong for getting in the situation for the f <clears throat> in the first place. In fact, no matter how wise, how insightful or how right you are. In fact, the more right you are, the more important it is for you to not talk. <laughs> Instead, listen. Now, often when you listen, you will find out what's being said is an attack upon you. In that, res in, in that case, what you do is listen. Stand aside, offer a hug if it's accepted. If it's not, that's all right, too. 
If you find a moment of peace in you, then or later on, you might think about what you are feeling. Don't act on what you are feeling. <laughs> Most likely you'll feel either the prince or the wild man, the rage or the fear. But the more you stand there, the stronger the gardener in you is. I mean, the first step of a wild man to plant the garden is to find a spot and stand there. Later on, the feeling passes. I think about feelings are only a few minutes long. When it passes, she'll be available to talk. May be interested in your observations. And I think you'll find that the woman will love you for it, which is very rewarding. A second moment or issue or task that a man has to do, handle, is having strong feeling without hitting, without putting down, without attacking, or without running or leaving or being withholding or withdrawn, to be able to stand toe to toe and yell. A lot of men are, certainly don't want to hit, but don't give that because the woman also has a weapon, which for the man is just as strong and fearful on a spiritual level as is the hitting, and that is um, fear of that she's going to wipe him out with hysteria, with strong feeling, push him into areas of feeling that he is totally uncomfortable with, okay? And I think both parties need to recognize the power a woman has with her strong feeling to terrify a man. As a man must recognize that his, just his physical size and strength usually terrorizes on some level the spirit of a woman. And that some agreement needs to be made, and the man has to know that he can stand and holler without hitting or running. No fight or flight. He's going to be a gardener. He's going to stay. He's going to face the weeds and the bugs and whatever is here. Drive away the animals. The other thing a man needs to do, the third thing, is to say no. Now, a prince can't say no. Pleasing is all he can do. You can avoid it later. Say no by being passive aggressive, but he can't just say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, the wild man doesn't say no so good either because what he says is, I don't care. I'm going to take what I want when I want it. And if I don't get it, who cares? Nothing you have that I need. So he doesn't really say no either. Just being able to say no in a wise man way is simply saying, no, but I love you. My no is not a rejection of you, our relationship, this thing. It's just I'm saying no. The fourth thing is um, the ability to ask for what you want. Um, the prince is usually not very good at asking for what he wants because it's provided. I remember in this very room, we had a, uh, a dinner, and I was seated at a table with a woman uh, family, the woman had uh, six kids, all of them adopted and handicapped adopted. And we were sitting around the table, and we, uh, there was bread 
uh, and, I, and, and I noticed that she buttered me a little piece of bread and put it next to my, <laughs> my plate. And uh, it, was a, it was stone soup, and so I ate my soup, and I ate my bread, and then I looked at my plate, and there was another piece of buttered bread there. <laughs> and then as I was eating this piece of bread, I noticed that she was buttering me another one. And I felt, I would like to be adopted by this family. <laughs> I mean, there was a feeling so sweet that my bread was always buttered. Very, very sweet feeling. But there's no asking in that. It's always provided. And that's the experience of the prince. So he's not very good at looking inside and saying, do I want bread and butter? I want this experience of having someone butter. But do I want bread and butter? He's not so sure about that. Um, And the wild man doesn't need anything. He takes what he wants. So asking for what you want is something that a man has to learn how to do. And then the final one I'll mention is just surrendering uh, to a woman. And I want to say that only because even though the prince can't surrender because he'll be engulfed, and the wild man can't surrender because then he'll be caged, um, the gardener is the one who knows how to do all of these things. He knows how to be present when a woman has stronger feelings than he can possibly muster. He knows how to express his feelings. He knows how to say no. He knows how to ask for what he wants. So as he's surrendering and surrendering, if he changes his mind and says, I don't feel like surrendering anymore, he knows he can say, no, stop. I want this instead and do something different. He's free. So he can surrender. That was about making commitment. Um, I have a second address I brought up today, and that's about um, the midlife itch. A second crisis in a commitment of a marriage starts when the masculinity and femininity begin shifting because we start outgrowing our gardening um, self. I feel conflicted, I'll tell you right now, because Nancy lectured me all week that I have two addresses here and I should save the second one. And I said, no, I'm going to do both. <laughs> and I look at the clock and it's 12.07. And I'm starting to deal with something called um, the midlife itch, the, what happens to a man in a marriage in his 40s and 50s. And I have to admit, the material I happen to be in my 40s, so the material was very important to me, and it certainly said something to a lot of men that I actually know, and I have this great desire to say it. Um, and I'm also aware of the time, 12.07. And so I don't know what to do. I feel like I should end here, or I should go on. I'm serious. Later. What? What? No. Surrender. What should I do, Nancy? I'll stop. All right. I stop? Okay. So therefore, let me see if my ending makes sense. It's too bad. Oh, well. Well, let me see if this works. Uh, today, what I want to... Uh, trying to emphasize is the idea that although we're all born males and females, uh, we got to claim uh, our masculine and feminine energy um, as we go.
go through life. And that matrimony is, I think, the central arena um, where that happens. And there are two very significant episodes. There are other episodes, but these are two very significant ones that have a lot of crisis and upset. Oh, I didn't get to do all my Jimmy Swagger stuff. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> making a commitment for the first time, in particular, making a new commitment is, is one of those issues. Um, and uh, it's an issue, of course, we deal with both in the relationship building and the singles group. Um, and if you are interested in this overall theme of that we are developing um, ourselves spiritually as we, we go, uh, next month I'm going to do the internal spring address for our spring festival. And then I was going to come back to matrimony, but I guess I'll come back to this in May. Um, I'm kind of burbling over with reactions to what all of you said, and I'd love to talk to you about them. Um, the uh, uh, the issue of how to deal with that energy, I think, is the issue of Jimmy Swagger. The second half of the talk particularly deals with that. Uh, the closing words uh, address that uh, ending, and I'll read them anyway, uh, whether they make sense or not, but maybe they'll form a kind of an opening to next time, um, hopefully. Uh, it's, uh, next time I have the continuation of the, of the story, uh, it really picks up from the Holy Grail. Uh, Art, in fact, had uh, lent me the book He by Robert Johnson that is a story of the, home, the Holy Grail um, as a male myth about an internal drama um, within the male. And it talks about the fact that um, at the age 40 or 50, uh, a successful man um, finds in his inner life the appearance of a person who's called the hideous damsel, who rides in on a mule and has the only function at first to uh, list all of his sins, shortcomings, mistakes. And uh, this is, uh, having discussed that, this is the uh, closing words about it. What, mean, what we must do with the hideous damsel when she comes, she is useful. You must not take tranquilizers and tell her to go away. You must not try to banish her with another fair damsel. You must not try to hide from her. You must not try to argue her down. When we men are 40 or 50 and the hideous damsel turns up and makes her devastating accusations, we must not try to wriggle out of it. It is the universal impulse to try to get out of the accusations of the hideous damsel. But this is absolutely the wrong thing to do. You must stick with her. You must just sit there and take it as long as she chooses to sit there on her mule in your mind, outlining your faults. Because when she has gone through her long speech, she will then set you on your quest again. This is what she is for, to reevaluate at midlife your progress and priorities, to integrate the missing feminine qualities that are necessary to complete your being and your sense of well-being. There's also a good time for a this is also a good time for a flesh-and-blood woman to be very, very quiet. First, so that she won't be saddled with the man's projection of the hideous damsel, which the man would be only too happy to put on her. Second, so that the man can get his bearings, listen to his inner voice a while, learn 
from that devastating experience. If he can keep faith with his inner hideous damsel, she will tell him what he has to do to continue his life. Thank you.